Welcome to One on One with Ilion, a podcast featuring the activists, celebrities, and politicians who have made it their mission to make the world a better place. And now, here is your host, Ilion Ramos. Hello and welcome. I have a very special show for you today. You may know my guest as the person who coined the famous slogan, Si se puede, meaning, yes we can in Spanish. The slogan that was later adopted by President Obama in his presidential campaign. You may also know her as the co-founder of the United Farm Workers, the group that helped redefine labor legislation in the 1960s. The fact is that for the past seven decades, this woman has dedicated her life to la lucha by organizing, campaigning, and pushing for equality and the defense of civil rights. She is, without a doubt, one of the most influential activists in U.S. history. And can I just say how lucky I feel? This woman has been a source of advice and mentorship to me personally for so many years, and so it is my great honor to welcome the living legend, the one and only Dolores Huerta. Dolores, welcome to the show. How have you been? Uh, I've been, well, thank you. So nice to be here with you. As I mentioned in the beginning, You've been at the forefront of civil rights for seven decades, working on labor, immigration, women's issues, and more. So for me especially, knowing you and all you have done, it's hard to believe that in this day and age, so many people still don't understand the impact of your work. Like everybody should know, everybody should know about you. So I want to start from the very beginning, like a Dolores Huerta 101. What was it like growing up as Dolores Huerta? Did you always know you wanted to become an activist? Well, no, actually, I was very, very shy when I was little, uh, but my mother was always pushing me to go out there. So when I was little, I played the violin, and I, I, I danced also. I tap dancing classes and folklorico, and so my mother always pushing me out there to dance in public because I was so shy. She wanted me to overcome my shyness. So I, I have to kind of thank her for a lot of my active uh, public work that I do. Oh, wow. Anybody had told me you were shy, I would have never in a million years believed it. I mean, look at all you've done. When did you first realize being an activist was your life mission? Well, I think, again, I was a Girl Scout for 10 years, and working in Girl Scouts, we had to do public speaking. We had to go out to the community and do different types of service work. So I think that also helped me overcome my shyness and also getting the idea that uh, you can be of service to others. And that, that was another thing, too, that my mother always said to us, if you can see somebody that needs help, you have a responsibility to help them, even if they don't ask you. Yeah, all of us have a responsibility to help other people. Well, I'd say she did a damn good job. I can totally relate, too, because that's like, quintessential Latina mom right there, isn't it? Always wanted you to do the right thing. Yes. And I know sometimes that becomes difficult because it, then sometimes it's hard to say no. When people want to ask you for help, it's hard to say no to them. Very true. And I, I think it comes down to finding the right balance, knowing when to say no and when to say yes to collaborating, right? Your story, for example, is forever linked to that of Cesar Chavez. I mean, talk about collaboration. You both led the unionizing efforts of farm workers in California in the 1960s and went on to co-found the National Farm Workers Association, which later became the United Farm Workers. How did you two end up working together? 
Well, we actually met in another organization. It was called a community service organization. And the man that organized that, is, his name is Fred Ross Sr. And in fact, they're working on a documentary about him. But there has been a book that has been written about him already called The Social Arsonist, because he puts people on fire to go out there and organize. And uh, it, when we, I first started in that organization in Stockton, California, a Caesar was organizing in the northern part of California in the Oakland, San Jose area. So that's when I got, first got to meet Caesar because they had a chapter of the community service organization in San Jose. They were organizing one in Oakland. And we had a chapter in Stockton, California. And so that's where I first met Cesar. And so we worked together for many years in that organization and eventually became uh, the secretary of that organization. Uh, Cesar was like the national organizing director of that group. And in that organization, it did a lot of similar work that we do now with the Dolores Huerta Foundation. Went out and we organized the community, having meetings in people's homes, you know, kind of empowering them to know that they could really change the conditions in their communities. And we did a lot of work in the state legislature. I was the political director also, so I was able to pass a lot of laws that, that really helped our people. I'm just going to mention, I think, three or four of them. Uh, one of the laws that we passed was uh, that you could get your driver's license in Spanish, that you could vote in Spanish, and that you could register voters door-to-door, that you didn't have to find a deputy registrar like they do now in Texas, you know? But you, anybody that was a citizen could register another person to vote. Uh, that really made a lot of difference in the voting laws. Uh, disability insurance for farm workers, uh, we were able to pass that law. So if a farm worker got sick outside of the job, that they could apply for some kind of assistance, you know, under our unemployment insurance laws here in California. But we passed a really big one that you probably know, and that is if you were not yet a legal citizen of the United States, but if you had your immigration status, you had your green card, that you could get public assistance, aid to the blind, aid to the disabled, old age pension, and aid to needy children. And so we know that today there are probably about 15 million people out there that are getting that type of service, even though they're not yet citizens of the United States of America. So that was one of the big, big uh, laws that we passed. Wow. And those are still the same kind of battles we're fighting to this day. And this is back back in the 1950s that we passed these laws, in the early 60s. <laughs> Unbelievable. You've been rallying people to work on all of these different causes for so many years. What do you think is different now in terms of organizing compared to the Chicano movement or other movements you've been part of since you started? Well, you know, back there in the 50s and 60s, in terms of the Latino movement, there were very few organizations. Uh, they had what they call uh, honorificas. These were like a death benefit organizations where people would come together and uh, they would, you know, pool their money. And then if somebody passed away, then they would have like, it was like a burial insurance, you know, when somebody in the family died. And then they had these organizations that were formed by the veterans, like the TI Forum, uh, LULAC. And these were formed by people who came back from World War II. Uh, Mexican-Americans mostly, and they decided to start these organizations. And then you had your honorificas again, uh, some of these organizations, and they organized to celebrate the fiestas patrias, you know, the, the holidays like the Mexican Independence Day, Cinco de Mayo. 
but you didn't have very many organizations at that time. Well, now today we see we have lots and lots of organizations in the Latino community. Right, right. And we have many, many uh, legal organizations like Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund, MALDEF. You might say we have hundreds of organizations that serve the Latino community in different parts of the country. Yes, thankfully. And you were one of the pioneers in that space and in many other spaces, really. What was it like to be a woman in the movement back then? Well, in the first organization that I mentioned, the community service organization, we had a lot of women that were presidents of different chapters. So there were a lot of women that were involved. And the Farm Workers Union, um, again, about 50% of the farm worker population are women. People don't realize that. And so we had a lot of women involved on the picket lines, you know. But when it came to the governance of the organization, when it came to the executive board, there it was all mostly male. For many, many decades, I was the only woman on the executive board. And I think the only reason I was on the executive board is because I was the founder, along with CESAT. You know, we started the union together. Uh, we had meetings with farm workers, you know, to set up our different chapters uh, throughout the San Joaquin Valley. But it was mostly Cesar and myself that were doing the organizing. So I came in on the ground floor, so to speak. And so that's why I was still a big part of it. But it took many, many years before we were finally able to change that to get more women on the executive board of the United Farm Workers. And today, as you probably know, the the president of the United Farm Workers is a woman. I did not know that. That's great. Yeah. So and, and the majority of the people on the executive board are women today. The president is Teresa Romero, and she's Mexican, a Mexican immigrant. And she now is the head of the United Farm Workers. What a beautiful legacy. You opened the door for her, and you continue to open doors for so many of us to this day. And speaking of opening doors for women, I want to switch gears for a little bit here. How did you transition from labor and farm worker rights to working on other things like women's issues and immigration and all of the other issues you work on? Well, the feminism, um, my mother was a feminist. She divorced my father because he was abusive. So I grew up with her as an example. However, being a Catholic, like many of us are, like many of us Catholics, we were taught that uh, birth control was a sin. We were taught that abortion is a sin. And so it took me a while to transition from to understand that, that women have a right to abortion and women have a right to have birth control. As you know, I have 11 children. <laughs> so that kind of speaks to until I was following the, what the Catholic Church was teaching. And so it was my relationship with Gloria Steinem, Eleanor Smeal, the head of the Feminist Majority Foundation. I sort of transitioned from it being anti-abortion to choice, that women have a choice. And then then I joined the Feminist Majority Foundation. I became a board member. And then I understood not only is it a choice, but that women have a right to abortion, that women have a right to govern their own bodies. And this was a huge, huge revelation for me. And I know for many Latinas out there, maybe many of whom are listening to your, your podcast today, tenemos problemas. You know, we have problems with that. And it's, it's sometimes very hard for us to understand. And you know, sometimes when I, when I think, uh, I don't know if you remember that movie, Nacho Libre. You know, it was a very famous yeah. movie. And there's a scene in that movie where Esqueleto, one of the actors, says, I believe in science. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in science. And so I think this is what we have to do. We have to believe in science, that a fetus is not a child. 
until the fetus is born and has light, you know what I mean, comes out of the mother's womb, then it is a child. Until then, it is a fetus. And it's such an important point to make because, as you said, women in our communities carry the weight of the consequences for pregnancy, and, and yet we're never taught to think of what it looks like in terms of our future, you know? And that lack of guidance is also mixed in with machismo, not just from the man, but also the machismo we internalize. You know? Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, we have to think about the oppression of women and the control of women. It comes from slavery. It comes from slavery, the idea that some people should give up their entire lives to make life better for others and to make people richer with your body and your energy of your life. You know, working people, women, children, that somehow we should give up our lives to make other people rich and comfortable, and giving up our own lives to make that happen. So we know that this is the way this is, a society has been framed for women, and so that's why it's so important that we as women, women understand why this needs to change, and that we are the ones that have to change it. Exactly. Totally agree. And of course, all of these issues intersect, right? That's the piece that's often missing in the conversation. So let me ask you this, Dolores. If we were to focus on solving them one by one, which issue do you think we should be paying attention to right now? Well, I think uh, it's one of the issues that we see that is right now in front of us. But as you and I know, that racism, which also comes from slavery, as Dr. Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, that racism is a sickness, it's an illness, and we have to be cured. And that, that's what we're going through right now. And people are using the issues of, of women's right to abortion, but people having a public education that includes all of this, you know, why we have to get rid of slavery and why we have to get rid of oppression, misogyny against women, and homophobia, why people have a right to a living wage. So this is all part of the what's happening right now in our country. And they're using these issues of racism and sexism to turn people one against the other and to kind of promote the kind of fascism that is happening in our country right now. And they're taking advantage of these issues, uh, you know, to rile people up and promote hatred against women and against people of color, against people with disabilities, against transgender and, and gay people. Well, you might say we're in the middle of all of this right now as we are doing your, your podcast. So basically, it's about polarization and organization being used as a wedge to feed capitalism and white supremacy. Exactly. Got it. Got it. Are we paying attention here? Are we taking notes? How are you tackling this in your work now, Dolores? What kind of projects are you focusing on with your foundation? Well, with the Dolores Huerta Foundation, did a lot of work on the census. Uh, we signed up 84,000 people uh, to sign up on the census. We did a lot of work on redistricting. In all of our maps, we have a great uh, demographer, Jesus Garcia, Latino. And all of our maps that were presented to the Ind Independent Commission were accepted in total. And then, of course, we had to do a lot of work on the elections. But we're doing a lot of work on education also. On COVID, we have vaccinated over 10,000 people. Right. And we have vaccination clinics every weekend. And we've had over 150 vaccination clinics, you know. So uh, we're doing all of that work on the health. And we have a youth program also, a big education program, trying to stop charter schools, you know, trying to get the curriculum that teaches about us in the schools. 
So we're very, very busy. And of course, uh, we haven't even talked about economic injustice, right? The income inequality that exists in our society. Right, right. And that's definitely one of the issues that affects our communities the most. It's really so much to do, so many issues to fix. Where do you find the stamina, Dolores? I see you sometimes and you're always flying somewhere. You always have all of these engagements that you have to attend and all of this work in the community. Where do you find the stamina to keep going? Well, I think that the work itself gives us the energy that we need. You know, uh, we have that energy because we know that we have to do this work. If not, it's going to get worse. And right now, we, we might say we're right there on the front lines. We're right there on the front lines with the fascists. Uh, we're in each other's faces. And so we have to out-organize the fascists. We have to out-organize the haters, you no? Know? So that's what we have to do. And so we have to work as hard as we possibly can to do that. Wow. We can't let them win. Exactly. Justice will prevail. Si se puede. But let's step aside from the negativity for a second here. Let's talk about some of the amazing things you have accomplished. So you've had movies, books, thousands of articles, even school curricula written about your life. You were inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 1993. You were awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Obama in 2012. You have accomplished so much and continue to be an inspiration for generations of people. What is the thing that you are the most proud of? Well, I think I'm proud of the fact that my children were able to be so accomplished without the support of their mother. <laughs> because in my work, you know, my, my kids say my kids were pretty neglected, but, you know, because of, maybe because of that, they all became very resourceful, and they were able to go out there and build their own careers without too much help, support from, from mom. And, uh, and that's, I think that's, then when we think of empowerment, that's what we try to do. We try to empower people so they can understand their own power, their own self-worth, and then be able to go after and achieve uh, whatever they want to do in life. And uh, that's what we do with our organizing, empower low-income people, mostly women. Many of them are immigrants. Uh, many of them don't speak the English language uh, very well. They don't have high school, high school education, but they understand that they have power and they, they can make, they can influence their communities. So I think this is what I'm most proud of. I think I'm very, I, I feel very grateful and I have a lot of gratitude that I learned this method of organizing to empower people. And I think that's what we have to do because if everybody in our country felt empowered, we would not be having these discussions about fascism because fascism would not have any place or any room. Because when people are empowered, when people are educated, and when I mean educated, that they're educated about the things that we've been talking about, where racism comes from, where misogyny and sexism comes from, you know, then this is when you might say people are not only, quote, enlightened, you know, se les ha aprendido el poco. <laughs> so, you know, this is what I, I think our work is that we have to do. And this is what I am most proud of. Any of those people out there that we have empowered, that are standing up uh, for their rights. Well, that is certainly a legacy you should be very proud of, Dolores. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Is there anything you wish more people knew about you that maybe has not gotten that much attention? Well, I would like more people to know about the foundation because all of the things I mentioned are the things that the Dolores Huerta Foundation has been working on. And we're going to be celebrating our 20th year this year, 2023. Then we started organizing. And we'll be having a lot of celebrations, 
so people will know about the foundation and the work that we're doing. And my daughter, Camila Chavez, is the executive director of the foundation. And I have other members of my family that also work for the foundation. But we have 51 staff right now. So we've really, really grown. Uh, we're working right now in five different counties here in the Central Valley of California. And this next year, we want to expand to the rest of California and maybe start some chapters in other states like New Mexico, maybe Arizona, places like that. Wow, I'm impressed because I remember back when we used to hang out more often. It was basically just you and your family working on this. Yeah, yeah, we had like a staff of maybe five or six people, right? And right, like, right. Now we've grown so much, yeah. Oh, amazing to hear. I've seen the website and I see who are all these people. This is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, and I didn't even mention that we were raising money to build a building, and we're going to call it the Peace and Justice Cultural Center, and with an organizing academy to teach people the organizing work that we do so that we can duplicate it and spread it all over the country. And uh, and then these other programs that I mentioned will be part of that also. We've already raised about $19 million, but we have to raise another $10 million. And we might be doing something in New York to try to do a fundraiser over there. I'll let you know so that you can let people know about it on the podcast. Well, Dolores, you know, this is your house. We're here for you, whatever you need. And of course, since I have the honor of your presence here today, I would love for you to share a couple of words of advice or inspiration that you would say to my listeners, to the millions of people out there who get inspired by your story every day. What would you say to them? Well, we just want to say to everybody that we really, whatever we've been doing in the past, we have to double our efforts just because of all of the things we've been talking about, this fascism that is now in our country right now. And it's so visible where people are trying to ban books, the books that they don't want children to read. This is so wrong. And so we've got to change this. You know, we've got to stop it. We've got to stop this fascist movement. It's like a war on all of us here and all of us that really want equality and equity in our country for everybody. We don't want to leave anybody out. But in order to stop this, we're going to have to fight really hard. And we just want to say to everybody out there, if you haven't been participating, we need you to participate. If you have been participating, as I know all of your listeners are people that are participating, then we have to go out there and recruit other people to join us because this work is going to be very, very big and very, very hard. And we need a lot of people to be able to, to make it happen, to sustain it and to win. Thank you so much for that, Dolores. How can we support the amazing work you and the foundation are doing? Well, we're on the web um, in our DoloresHuerta.org. It's D-O-L-O-R-E-S-H, like in hero, U-E-R-T-A, DoloresHuerta.org. And you can look at our website there, and there's places there where people can apply to join us. We call it a Join Our Movement for Peace, Justice, Equity for Everyone. And well, you know, when I talk in public, I like to end my meetings and I ask everybody to stand up and then I ask them questions. I ask them two questions and I know that they know the answers. And the question that I ask is, who's got the power? And I want people to say, we've got the power. And we say, what kind of power? We say, people power. So that's what we have. We have people power. People power is a powerful engine. And when we put all of our power of the people together, that's how we can make advances and really create a progressive society, which is what we need today. That's a great idea. What better way to bring the spirit of organizing to the podcast? Let's do it. Okay, let's go. Who's got the power? We got the power. What kind of power? 
People power. Are we going to use our power to create a better world, a better just world, an equitable world without racism, sexism, homophobia, classism? What do we say? Se puede? Si sí, se puede. Se puede? Si sí, se puede. All right. Dolores, it's been such an amazing pleasure to see you again, to talk to you. I miss you dearly. So I hope that we can see each other very soon. Thank you so much, Dolores. You're welcome. After that big blast of energy, I have only two things left to say. Number one, that woman you just heard, Dolores Huerta, is turning 93, coming up on April 10th. And if she's still out there fighting for our rights, we really have no excuse to be standing on the sidelines. Number two, if you're tired of standing on the sidelines, and in case you missed it, We just launched our brand new donation hub in which our guests select their favorite charities and we set up a donation link on our website. The charities include the Dolores Huerta Foundation, MyFace.org, and more. Go check it out. It's at bit.ly slash one-on-one donation hub. Let's show some love to our favorite progressive causes. As Dolores always says, see. Sí. Thank you for listening to One on One with Ilian. We hope you enjoyed today's topic. For more information and inspiration, join us again next week. To catch our latest, you can follow us on all socials at One on One with Ilian. That's it for this episode. See you next time.